So I put my head down until I got there and said, why not 10? Why not 100? It's an endless thing. Same thing. You work, work, work to get four percent or 30. I got it. And I was like, okay, now I want to get something else. And it's not about working towards the light at the end of the tunnel. It's about making sure the tunnel's always lit. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. But before we get started, let's check in with the main man, Cody. How's it going? Hey, what's up, man? I'm just getting back from a fun weekend. I was visiting my girlfriend at my alma mater, UMass Amherst, went to a fun tailgate, tore it up, saw some old friends. How about you, man? Well, I just got back from a beach house in Texas. I know not everyone thinks about it being, you know, the coastal getaway, but there actually is some coastline down there. So had a pretty good time. Always good to go down south as it starts cooling down up here in Boston. And I think you threw in a little plug there about UMass Amherst. And I think there's maybe something to do with that in this episode where we have Taylor coming on who started this crazy sock business out of nowhere that's making millions of dollars now. But let's don't give away Taylor's entire story. Take it away, Taylor. I mean, I remember even though I was like probably five or six, like going to buy a cheeseburger and saying like, hmm, why is this $4? Why isn't it a three fifty? Why isn't it four fifty? Like how much did it cost to make? Like that's what my mind was always geared towards. I escalated to like middle school, high school, being like, oh, you know, this candy I could buy at the grocery store for 25 cents each and sell it for a dollar each later. That's crazy. Like the idea of price arbitrage just like absolutely blew my mind that you could buy something for one price somewhere and sell it for a different price somewhere else. And that just was like, absolutely eye-opening to me. And I was like, whoa, you could, there's an opportunity to make money. So for whether it's selling candy or water bottles or sports tickets, I got really big into buying and selling clipper tickets when I was like 16 and flipping tickets. So I've always been just fascinated by this idea of like, you could buy something for one price and sell it for a different price. So some people we interview, they just feel like it was always in them. Like you mentioned, you know, starting early, but is there a person, maybe the way that you were raised, an event that happened? Is there anything you can point to that maybe kickstarted that? So I don't think there was actually like a person or like a single event that made me really interested in it. It was more just, I was always fascinated by the concept of value and always like thinking something costs something here, but it costs something else somewhere else, which is like, I remember the earliest days, I remember when I'd go to a restaurant or something and a water bottle would cost a dollar and I'd see it at the grocery store for 25 cents. And I'd I'd just be like, why do people buy water bottles at restaurants for a dollar when they could buy it for 25 cents at a grocery store, the same exact bottle. And I just remember like that, like was something that I was just like, Oh my God, this is so interesting to me. And I was just fascinated by the concept of value. So let's move forward through, I know through middle school, high school, you're probably doing all these little entrepreneurial flip type things. Then you get into college. And I know we have a very similar story where I don't know whether it was societal pressure, pressure from friends and family, but you thought you had to go like the corporate route. And I know you want to be like an investment banker. Could you kind of take us through your mindset there? It seems like the inner entrepreneur was getting suppressed at that point. Well, yeah. So I just knew I wanted to be financially independent. So I knew like going into college freshman year, I knew the cost of college. And I was just like, I had this epiphany. I was like, I'm spending so much freaking money here at this school. I better just bust my ass to make sure I make money when I get out of here because I just, I just felt this huge financial burden from college. And I was like, damn, like this is so expensive. I got to figure out how to leverage just to make money. And I was at first attracted by the field where you make the most money, finance. And I was like, I can make six figures out of school. It's so awesome. I always had the entrepreneurial spirit. Like freshman year, I started a company. Sophomore year, I started a different company. 
And they're both moderately successful. And those were both companies before feed. But at the same time, I was doing banking and I thought I wanted to do that so badly. And I remember I, just, I got an investment banking internship, like which is super coveted, hard to get, especially coming from UMass. Like UMass kids don't get investment banking internships. It's pretty screwed up, but it's like, you're not from a target school. You don't get an investment banking internship. So I really just like hustled and got that. And when I was there, it was like crazy. Like all the VPs and directors were all in their third or fourth wives and they're all sad and lonely. And I was just like, I don't want this life. Like <laughs> these are not role models I look up to. I don't want to be like these people. And if I go down this path, I'll do this. Like, and I saw all the associates and analysts that were a couple of years out of school. They're all super pale. They're all like chain smoking cigarettes. And they're all just like, they're making money, but they just work a hundred hours a week and their life sucks. And I was like, that's just stupid. <laughs> like I don't want to do that. <laughs> and that's what I was like, I'm going to be an entrepreneur or I'm not really going to have an option. So after going through this wake up moment, did you take that epiphany like to anyone and kind of bounce it off of them and say, hey, am I crazy? And then if you did, like, were they supportive or were they just like, dude, you're leaving a lot of money on the table and try to talk you out of it? A lot of people try to talk me out of it, especially because I was so deep within the finance world at UMass. And I was like doing the finance society thing. And I think I was on like the board or like running that. And I was like super involved and like super well networked in the finance world. Like I was the poster child for finance at Eisenberg. Like I was supposed to be the next poster child who gets the Goldman Sachs job or whatever and be that role model. And I was like, I dropped out of Eisenberg, which is our business school at UMass. And everyone's like, you're such an idiot. It's so hard to get into the business school. Why are you dropping out? And I was like, I think I'm going to be all right. So there's definitely some pushbacks when you go against the norm, but when you have such a strong conviction and belief in what you're doing, like you don't even listen to that. So I'm like, I don't care what you think. I'm right. And when you believe it that firmly, you just don't care and you don't listen. So as we all know, the life of an entrepreneur is not easy. It's not all gold and rainbows and you don't just start making millions of dollars with your first venture. <laughs> Could you talk about, I'm blanking on the name. I know you tried to create a marketplace for students to buy and sell items. I think this was in the beginning of your freshman year or something like that. Could you just talk about that? Because people don't often highlight the entrepreneurial failures, just the huge successes. Yes. I mean, so I have so many failures <laughs> and, and it's funny. It's like the first was when I first got to UMass, I remember I was like looking to buy textbooks and everyone's like kind of posting on Facebook, like selling textbooks or tickets or whatever. And I was like, why is there no Craigslist for colleges? Like there's so many things that get sold between tickets, textbooks, mini fridges. Like, so I decided to make this Craigslist for college, more or less, and called it Market Loco. We got really good traction at UMass, and we launched in Michigan. And we're getting like half a million page views, which is like a significant amount of users and stuff. Ended up not figuring out how to monetize it, and the server costs were too high, so I ended up shutting it down. So failure, lost some money there. Then sophomore year, I was an out-of-state student. I came from Los Angeles to UMass, first time in the East Coast. I didn't know one person. So like freshman year, first semester freshman year was pretty shitty. Like. I had no friends. I was on the international floor and like didn't know anyone. Like no one spoke English, and I was like, "This sucks." So spring, I joined a fraternity, and they're just making me buy like t-shirts for every single event. And I'm like, "Dude, this is so stupid. Like, why do I have to buy a t-shirt every week for this tailgate or this party or this whatever?" And they're like, 15, 20 bucks a t-shirt." So I was like, just kind of talking, like, "Hey, where do you guys make these t-shirts? Whatever." They don't really know. They're like, "We buy them for fifteen bucks." I start looking into it. I'm like, "Damn, I can make these shirts for five bucks and sell them to the fraternity for fifteen bucks." And they're ordering 100 shirts at a time. So if I can make 10 bucks a shirt on 100 shirts, I can make $1,000. And I'll get the money from them up front. And then I'll go use the money to go buy it so I won't have to risk any money. So I did that with my fraternity. And I was like, oh, shit, I've made some money here. So I started going door to door to other fraternities and sororities being like, who makes your shirts? I can make them cheaper. And I started doing that. And then I actually, that summer, I drove from Los Angeles to Massachusetts 
And I stopped, it was the first week of school. I stopped by every single college on the way, Arizona, Arizona State, Texas, Alabama, Auburn, LSU, like went on this trip and just stopped at every single college and went door to door at every fraternity. And I was like 20 at the time, 19. And I was like, who makes your shirts? I can make them cheaper. I made these business cards. I made it seem like it was a legit business. And I started picking up clients all over the country. <laughs> and like some of these clients were bigger, like these big schools at Arizona or Texas, they had like 300 people in the fraternity. So they ordered 300 shirts. And I charge them, you know, 12 bucks and I make them for four. I make eight bucks a shirt on 300 shirts. What is that? $2,400 profit. And I was like, this is so easy. I'm making so much money. So that was really good. And I was scaling that my sophomore year. By junior year, I was making like 25 grand a semester doing that. And I was like, wow, entrepreneurship is so easy and fun. And then I got one huge order at Arizona, I think. And it was for like shirts, like pocket tees. And they printed, my manufacturer printed, it was like, I think like a five or $7,000 order, which when I'm a junior at college is like so much money. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> and they printed the design of the pocket tee. They printed it above the pocket, not on the pocket. And the guy called me, he's like, I got these 500 shirts and they're messed up. I'm like, I want my money back. And I was like, oh shit. So there's like either have him hate me and have him talk, you know, lose a client and have negative things about me or refund the money. So I ended up refunding the money. I learned a lot from that business. I lost some money there, but learned a lot. Just like custom business is a pain. Like there's a million ways to get it wrong and one way to get it right. And even like an example is like, I remember for UMass, I made shirts for someone and the shirts came out like more burgundy than maroon. And they're like, this is burgundy, not maroon. We want our money back. And I'm like, bro, burgundy and maroon are like the same color. Like, relax <laughs> but they freak out about everything so like custom business is a pain and it was interesting because i came from a custom business and so did parker my co-founder at feet and that's how we met and initially bonded over like talking about how much custom business sucks and how we want to start a brand so you take what you learn from your failures early and you apply that to the next thing so it seems like you were doing a lot of that business at least at first like very local like with people you knew or at least in the same school did you ever run into any situations where a business deal kind of goes bad and then it got really weird because this is not just somebody like across the internet, you know, this is somebody very local and who knows who you are. Yeah. I've lost so many friends. It sucks. <laughs> um, it's really horrible. It's, it's horrible doing business with people because everyone's delusional and then it's just people think like business, you have to be serious. They take out the human aspect and everyone just gets like super greedy and like professional and tries to be like super businessy. And it's just like, it's horrible, man. I've lost so many friends over business and it sucks, but that's the cost of doing business. Amen to that. I am totally in that same camp where like, I feel like people can do great things. They can create awesome products and services without being like super uptight businessy. I hate that. But one thing that you talked about that I really love to dig into, because it is awesome finding that like perfect partner in a business could you talk about the genesis of meeting Parker, what that meant, and kind of what those initial conversations looked like? Yeah, so the first time I met Parker, it was senior year at UMass, and we, we both signed up for this entrepreneurship class. So it was first day of senior year, and I remember it's this entrepreneurship class, and I'm in there, and I'm talking about, like, after class, like, I'm like, dude, I'm the, I'm the hotshot entrepreneur on campus. Like, I'm the big promoter. Like, I sold 25K last semester selling t-shirts, like... I'm the entrepreneur. I don't even know why I'm in this class. Like I know exactly what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. So after class, like, I, I kind of had a little reputation around campus. And so all these kids were talking to me, like asking about how I made all this money, what I was doing, blah, blah, blah. Cause everyone knew about other companies. And then Parker comes up to me like super humbly. He's like, Oh, that's cool. Like I do custom stuff too. And I was like, Oh, cool. 
I kind of brushed him off <laughs> and then went back to like, so back to me, let me tell you about how I'm selling blah, 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 25,000, blah, blah, blah. And everyone's like kind of oohing and aahing. And Parker could tell I was giving him no respect. And then he just burps in and he goes, I've done over a million dollars in sales. <laughs> I remember so well, like everybody was like facing me and like their shoulders were facing me. They all turned their bodies and was like, just went and oohing and aahing over Parker. And he kind of smirked. He's a lot more humble than me. But that day it was at Eisenberg at our business school. And he offered me a ride back to my apartment and he drives me back. And it was the first day I met him. And we sat in his car and talked for like three hours. We talked about custom business, how it's a pain. He talked about all this stuff. So he made over a million dollars in sales doing custom lacrosse uniforms, like making custom uniforms for like all these different lacrosse programs and teams. And everyone with their uniforms, they had these crazy jerseys and crazy shorts and they wanted crazy socks to match. So Parker's like, dude, I, I think I'm onto something here. I have these crazy socks. People like them. He's like, I don't know what to do. And we both were like, we're not doing custom. That's a pain. Let's start a brand. And so like the next day we go to TJ Maxx and we buy all these white Nike and white Adidas socks. And we Google some designs like floral pattern, pineapple pattern. And we print them on socks and we go outside Burke, which is the dining hall. And with 200 pairs of socks and Parker's like, we sell on campus. I was like, who cares? Let's just do it. And that day we sold all 200 pairs of socks at $10 a pair. We made two, I had like two grand in my hand. I remember so well, Parker dropped me off with the socks and he went to go find parking. And by the time he came over, I had like $300 in my hand. And he was like, you're messing with me. It was like, you didn't sell $300 worth. I'm like, dude, I swear I did. <laughs> so that day we sold two grand and we're like, whoa, if we could sell $10 socks to college kids who are going to eat and who have no money, we think we have something here. And then senior year, we sold close to 20,000 pairs, pretty much out of our backpacks, which is pretty wild. And then, you know, a couple of days after graduation, we were able to raise some money and really scale the business. So can you dig into a little bit like how you actually did this? So did you already have equipment to make these socks? Like where did you learn how to make socks just randomly after looking at some designs? So Parker knew how to make them because he was making them for his lacrosse uniform company. And then I don't know if you guys know Bob Lowry. He's a teacher at UMass. I love Bob Lowry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Parker won like a pitch competition in Bob Lowry's class and he won like 500 bucks or something for his pitch competition. And with that 500 bucks, he brought something called a heat press and a heat press. It looks like a big panini maker and it just a sublimation heat transfer. So then you get these sublimated prints and you could print these designs on. So literally it's like you take a blank white sock or any garment, you could take any white garment and you get sublimation ink paper and you put the panini maker down, the big heat press, and it presses the design into the garment. So at first we had no idea what we were doing. And I remember it was so funny, Parker actually, you can only do sublimation printing, that type of printing on inorganic material. So like polyester or spandex, you can't do it on cotton. So Parker, one of his first orders, he pressed them all on cotton socks and they looked great. And then you washed them once and the whole designs wore out. People brought these crazy socks. They washed them once and then there's white socks. Uh, But that's just like, that shows the power of trial and error and just doing it. Like you just have to start and you just have to do it. And like knowing that you're going to make mistakes, the only way you get better is by making mistakes. All right. So with my limited knowledge of a heat press, I'm just picturing how slow I'm thinking of Burke right now, how long it takes for a panini to get made. How many hours were you guys spending pressing 20,000 pairs of socks senior year? That just seems like a crazy amount of time. Yeah. So at first we were doing it by hand and we would do it from like literally 11 p.m. to like 4 a.m. and then wake up the next day and go sell them because we were just crazy. <laughs> and then, then we got a warehouse in Amherst. We got this like pretty big 2,000 square foot warehouse, but we were too cheap to put the heat on. So in the winter, it's like 30 degrees in there. So we're trying to like 
put these socks on these like templates and things and line them up and we're wearing gloves because it's so freaking cold in there and big puffy jackets. And then eventually we were like, okay, it doesn't make sense for us to do this anymore. Let's get our friends. So we started paying our friends like 15 bucks an hour in cash and they would literally just come in all night and they would like drink beers and do whatever, listen to music and just make socks all day. Like they'd come after the bars and do them. <laughs> like, hey, like, what are you doing after the bars? You want to come and make socks for a couple of hours? <laughs> so we, we just had like a revolving door of just people coming in and just making socks. Like anyone, like everyone I met, I was like, hey, you want to go make some socks? All of our friends were just doing it. And yeah, it was hard. But at that time, though, you're just, you're so delirious and like the, the joy of like the hustle. And it, just, it doesn't seem like work. It's just fun. So now I'd like if you could just start kind of walking us through how you scaled. So you're selling these out of your backpack, you're selling a ton of them, but then what kind of takes it to the next level and how do you start marketing that outside of just the local area? Around UMass, we were able to get a pretty good traction. We were able to get like 10,000 followers, which is like half the school. We just, just every single person I saw around campus, I'd be like, follow us on Instagram, follow us on Instagram, buy a pair of socks. I was the most annoying, obnoxious person ever. And there's actually this hack that we were able to grow Instagram really quickly was I figured out if you let someone sign into your Instagram on their phone, they could do this thing where it follows all their Facebook friends. So all these people that are at UMass, they're friends with all their Facebook people back home. So Feet Socks would actually, I would give them a free pair of socks and I'd say, I just need to follow all your friends. Their friends wouldn't know that it was from them. And I would go and follow like literally, if someone had a thousand friends, I'd follow, you click one button, it follows a thousand people. And if you get... 20% to follow you back because this is back in the days of Instagram where if you got a follow, you probably followed that person back or you went and checked them out. It was before bots and automation and everything. So that's how we really grew our following beyond UMass and our exposure just by using everyone's friend list from their friends back home. So that was big. And then after graduation, a couple days after graduation, we got 250K from an angel investor. Wow. which is wild. Like we graduated and then like a couple of days later, I remember like Parker sent me a screenshot of her bank account. We did a Kickstarter. We got 30 K there and 250 K. We had like almost 300 K in our bank account. And we were just like, what the heck? This is wild. So then we used that money to scale and we're still like pretty local at this time. And then this is 2015 and I'm just hooked on influencer marketing. Like this is before influencer was a word before anyone knew if these influencers or people could sell anything. And I'm just so hooked on it. But nobody's taking me seriously. So I'm reaching out to all these agents and all these people. And they're all just like, ah, you're a little college kid. Go away, pretty much. And I was like, ah. And then finally, we randomly get connected to this guy, David Falk, who was Michael Jordan's agent. And he built the whole Jordan brand. Wow. He's just a beast. (laughs) One of the biggest NBA super agents, like super connected, super legit. So he joins our team. And with him, we're able to do a deal with Ali Raisman. This is 2016. Wow. And this is where we first went national because Allie at the time when we were working with her only had like 150,000 followers or something. And I remember so well, she's like, do you think I'll get to like 250,000 or 500,000 by the Olympics? I was like, Allie, you're going to get into the millions. And she goes during the Olympics, she's the center of attention. She goes from 150,000 followers to 2.2 million followers. And she sells like half a million dollars of socks. And everyone's talking about her. She's front of the news everywhere. And people are talking about the socks. We're on the front page of Yahoo. We're on the front page of like all these different sites, like talking about our socks. And that's like what first got us this national attention. So can we go back a little bit just to the tactics? Like an angel investor, and maybe they did, but typically doesn't just fall into your lap. Were you actively going out and looking for investors in your company? We're just trying to give like the listeners tactical advice on if they want to try to do something similar. It seems like you guys were really hitting the ground game hard, but what did that look like on a tactical level? 
Yeah, so we had an idea of raising money because we just thought that's what you do, right? Or it's like, oh, you're in college, you're starting a business, you got to raise money. You, that's what you do. And I think our passion and our networking, we just didn't stop. Like literally every single person we talked to, we talked about feet all the time. Like I had socks in my jacket all the time. And it was one alumni that I knew invited me to dinner at Wings Over Amherst, which is like this like little janky wing spot. I know wings. Um, <laughs> exactly. He invited me to a dinner there. And while I was there, there's another alumni there, this guy, Vinny Duball. And Vinny, I was just taught, he was interested in what we were doing. And the alumni introduced me and said, yeah, he's a little sock company. And Vinny's like, oh, cool. Like, tell me more. And I was like, I'll just show you. And I pull like six socks out of my jacket, like <laughs> brand new socks. And he was like, I'll buy all of them. And he gave me like a hundred bucks and just bought all the socks. He's like, I loved your hustle, blah, blah, blah. And then he was wearing those socks that he bought at the gym. And then one of his friends saw him wearing those socks at the gym and asked, because like they're super bright pink socks or something. He asked, like, what are those socks? And he was like, oh, it's a UMass kid, blah, blah, blah. And then that guy that saw him wearing our socks at the gym ended up being our first investor. And I remember so well, it was so funny when we met with him, because we have no idea what the hell this company's worth. Like we're college kids. Like to us, 50K is like so much money. So our plan was, to raise 50K at a $100,000 valuation. So the plan was to give up half the company for 50K. And we were, the plan was to raise it from 10 different people and get 5K checks from 10 different people. And that was the plan. And Vinny, our advisor, or the guy, the alumni I met, and he was like, no, no, you got to raise way higher. And I, our other founder at the time was like, we should raise at a $5 million valuation. And I was like, dude, there's, are you, we have like, no way, man. We have like $200,000 in sales. How are we a $5 million company? So we meet with this guy who wants to invest with us. And we told him we want to raise 250K. And we're going to Sushi. This is a place in Northampton. This is like two weeks before graduation. And he's like, okay, you guys want 250K. At what valuation? And it was me, Parkin, with another founder, Elijah, at the time. And we kept saying, like, Elijah, if you really want to raise a $5 million valuation, you're going to have to be the one that says it. Because I don't have the balls to say that with a straight face. Like, <laughs> There's no way I could say that. And so the guy's sitting across from us, we had a good lunch. And then he's like, so what valuation do you want? And it's just quiet. And we're both looking at Elijah like, dude, come on, come on. And then finally, I just kick Parker. And Parker just goes, uh, $3 million valuation. <laughs> and like, just like, so uncomfortable. And the guy's like, hmm, okay. How about a $1.5 million valuation? And underneath, we're like jumping for joy. We're like, $1.5 million valuation. That's amazing, blah, blah. But we're just like, We'll think about it and get back to you. <laughs> and then we leave and then we agree to turn. So we ended up raising 250K at a $1.5 million valuation. Pure luck. Ironically enough, like 10 months later, we raise a million at a $10 million valuation, which is also a crazy story. Yeah, I mean, as far as raising money, if it happens, it happens. I think a lot of people are too aggressive about it and just want the money for the money. It's all about who you know. And whatever you're worth, it's just what you say you're worth. And it's just such a gray area. So it's like whatever you are worth and you could believe in, go try to raise the valuation and maybe you'll meet the right person and it'll work. Maybe you won't. But just, I think it's all about just knowing as many people as possible. I just think that was such a, a great example of how you just keep knocking on doors until you never know what's going to happen. I mean, yeah, that person sort of fell in your lap, but you went to so many people and eventually, you know, something led to a lead. So I think that's an awesome story. But what I was going to ask was, you know, this thing is obviously growing at a, at a crazy rate. Did it ever get to a point where the business was actually moving a lot faster than you could? Like it kind of felt like it got out of control on you. Good. <laughs> That's a great question. It got so out of control. So we graduate, we do the deal with Allie, we moved to LA, we do this deal with this guy, Logan Paul. And with one post, he sells $500,000 of socks. 
we raise a million dollars. At this time, we have like 1.5 in the bank. And we're just like, damn, we're 22 or 23. We're just like, we're so good at entrepreneurship. We understand it better than anyone else. We're so smart. We hire 20 employees in in like 10 months. (laughs) And not just any employees, 20 entry-level employees with no skill sets. We have no idea what they're doing. We thought we were so smart that we can mold them. So I just remember like, we're hiring everyone, man. It's like, oh, you don't have no sales background? We could teach you. You have no marketing background? We know what we're talking about. We're so good. We could teach you. So we had 20 entry-level employees in-house with no management structure, having no idea what we're doing. We're 22. We didn't even know how to, like, we don't know anything. And that just was ridiculous. It was wild. We get this 5,000 square foot warehouse. We put a pool inside the warehouse. We put a basketball <laughs> court in there, ping pong table. It's everything you'd expect, right? It's like, oh, yeah, like, this is what you do. And we messed it up so badly. Definitely grew way too fast. So I remember seeing that warehouse and I was like, Jesus, these guys are like Rob Deerdick. I saw like that crazy <laughs> car. I don't know what type of car that was. I think Taylor, yeah. you had some weird, crazy sports car looking thing. What was that exactly? It's called the Polaris Slingshot. Oh, the Slingshots. Yeah. Oh, the- yeah. But, but not only that, I got it wrapped. So it was like bright pink, bright yellow. And it was just like the craziest colors. I still have it actually. It's just like sitting in my garage. I never drive anymore. <laughs> we went pretty wild. And then it all came crashing down. That's what I wanted to roll into. So you're balling out. You have the Rob Deerdick warehouse. At what point did it just become so unmanageable where you were like, hey, Parker, you know what? We need to scale this thing back down. Yeah. So we're balling out. We have the Rob Deerdick warehouse. We have all <laughs> the cars. We're four, we just get named Forbes 30. And we're just like, dude, life is we, – we got this shit figured out. <laughs> like, and then it was, I think, Q4 of 2017 – we were working with a 3PL. So it's a third party logistics company that like ships all your stuff. So you pretty much ship your stuff to them and they ship it out. And we were planning on doing like a couple million dollars in December alone. And cause it was like holiday season. We're crushing on Facebook ads. We're crushing everywhere. And then our 3PL emails us and says like for in order for customers to get their product by Christmas, it has to, the order has to be placed by December 7th which for us is like, oh shit, we're losing that week of the 7th to the 20th. Like that's so much revenue. We're not gonna be able to sell then, whatever. So we sell like a million dollars in those first seven days of December and just crush it. And then out of that, about 10% of those orders that were by December 7th, 10% of those orders didn't get to customers by Christmas. And then we were like, oh shit, we have this huge dilemma. Like we ruined Christmas for thousands of people. And the way digital marketing works is like you can't have negative sentiment because if like A, that customer is never going to order from us again, so that kills our lifetime value. B, they're going to talk smack about us to all their friends. Oh, that company sucks. I ordered on December 5th and didn't get my thing by Christmas and they promised it. And then C, they're going to start commenting all your ads negatively and that just destroys you as an e-commerce company. So we have this dilemma. Do we refund like $100,000 of orders or do we just tell them that? you know, pound sand and we're not going to refund them. So we ended up having to like refund all these orders and it just like really messed us up and all these people were pissed off and it was just horrible. And that kind of led us spiraling down pretty badly. It started hurting our ads and hurting our performance because everyone's like, yeah, that company's cool, but you know, you never get your stuff from them. It's a scam. It's that, it's this. And that really, really hurt us. And then started spiraling down. We downsized a little bit, but then where it really hit rock bottom was Parker and I realized like we were too one dimensional, meaning all we did was work. Like we worked all the time. Like we had too much Gary V in our ears saying like, work, hustle, grind, no friends, no life. 
know anything. And we listened to that. And like literally for like probably a year, a year and a half, we didn't go out once to have a sip of alcohol or like go to a bar or do anything. We didn't hang out with friends ever. We'd wake up at six and work till 10 and do nothing else. And we were depressed. Like it sucked. And it was crazy. Cause it was like, it was the best time for the business. The business was growing, but we were so unstable. And it got to the point where I was so unstable mentally. Like I was depressed, man. Like I probably gained 30 pounds. Like I had no friends. Like it was horrible. And I got to such a negative point. 2018 during Q4, like one of our biggest times, I, I couldn't take it anymore. I, I remember I turned to Parker and I said, I just booked a one-way flight to Thailand. Can you take me to the airport? And it was like a Tuesday morning at 11 a.m. He's like, what? And I was like, dude, I need to get out of here. I'm leaving my phone. I'm leaving my computer. I'm not taking anything with me. And I'm going to come back. I booked a one-way. I'll come back when I'm ready. <laughs> and, and he's like, okay. He understood how, what a bad situation we both were in. And he drives me to the airport. I remember I was like driving to the airport and I called my mom and I was like, mom, I just want to let you know it's all good. I'm leaving my computer and phone here. I'll contact you if I need anything, but I just booked a one-way flight to Thailand. I'll come back when I'm ready. <laughs> I remember she was like, Tay, no, you can't do that, blah, blah, blah. Like you should go to therapy first. It might be cheaper. <laughs> and I was like, mom, I just need to get away from this, all of this. I need to get away. That was my rock bottom. And I just like remember so well going to Thailand like meditating with monks and then like seeing these kids in the streets with just like rags on their body, kicking a Coke can and playing soccer with it with smiles. And I'm like, damn, like these kids have nothing and they're happy. And I had Forbes under 30 millions of dollars in sales, this, that, the car, the warehouse. And I'm miserable. Like who's winning in life? Like, do I want to be the person that's enjoying it and happy and smiling? Or do I want to be a person that is killing it in business and has the things? So that's when my mindset really shifted away from like, I think coming out of school, those first couple of years out of college, you're so impressionable because you don't know how you're supposed to navigate the world. And you kind of sometimes just listen to the loudest voice. And to me, the loudest voice was Gary Vee. And he was saying, here's how you live in your 20s. You got, you're supposed to hate your 20s. You're supposed to work all the time. You're not supposed to have fun. If you do that, you're, you're ruining your later life. And I believe that way too much. And I hated that. And that really messed me up. It got me really sad and depressed. And it's like, so that's what me and Parker really want to show with our content and our lifestyles. Like you can enjoy life and be good at business. It's not one or the other. It's not binary. And you really have to take care of your mental health and you really have to enjoy life. Like it's too short to try to delay gratification forever. And that was a huge learning lesson for me. So after you, you know, you come back from that and you have learned all those lessons, what did you do to actually make changes in your life so that you didn't end right back up in the same spot? It was hard and it's really hard. And it's like, it's hard as an entrepreneur and even as an ambitious person, even if you're not an entrepreneur, it's hard to enjoy yourself at first because you're like, ah, oh, shit, I'm hanging out with my friends, but I could be doing this. Or like, oh, I can't go watch a movie because someone else is working hard on me. And it's really hard. And then eventually you just have to trust yourself and trust that you're going to get shit done. You're going to be successful at whatever you do. And that if you can't enjoy the ride, I think one of the biggest things is like, I had the mindset of wanting to work in the dark with my head down just to get to that light at the end of the tunnel. And I was like, that's how you get to the light at the end of the tunnel. You have to work with your head down. And I got to that light. Like we got to, I remember I was thinking like, I'm going to work with my head down. Once I get to a million dollars in sales, I'd be happy. And then I got to a million dollars in sales and I got to that light at the end of the tunnel. I said, why don't I have 5 million in sales? So I put my head down until I got there and I said, why not at 10? Why not at 100? It's an endless thing. Same thing. You work, work, work to get four percent or 30. I got it. And I was like, okay, now I want to get something else. And it's not about working towards the light at the end of the tunnel. It's about making sure the tunnel is always lit because then you're playing with house money. 
because I promise you, anyone out there who's like working towards a light towards the end of the tunnel, I'll be happy if, I'll be happy when, whether it's when I get a promotion or I start making 100K a year or this or that, whatever it is, you won't be happy when you get that. You'll be happy if you can enjoy the destination and the journey there. And that was a big mindset shift that took, literally it took like three years for me to fully understand it. Like people would tell me it, but you really have to understand it for yourself. And it took years to really understand. What a great t-shirt. This tunnel is lit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so could you talk about the business today? I think, I don't remember what article I was reading, but you called it efficient AF. And now you guys are <laughs> the only two employees and you outsource everything else. Could you just talk about how that works for the company? Yeah. So we had all this, we were drowning in overhead. So we had 20 employees in house. We had the warehouse, we had this, that employee benefits. We had to buy snacks and blah, blah, blah. We had like 75 K a month in overhead. And that just killed us because no matter what you do in sales, like you got to pay that 75K a month in overhead. So then we decided to outsource and automate things and just really leverage distributed teams. So for example, like we had a customer service person, they're a college grad, they're making 45 grand a year, which is minimum wage in California. And they were complaining they wanted more money and they were okay, like whatever. But instead of paying 45 grand a year, now I have a guy in the Philippines for a couple bucks an hour. He only works when we need him and he speaks perfect English and he's amazing. So it's like distributing parts of your team like that. And we ended up distributing everything and just working with a bunch of contractors and flex workers. And what we realized is A, it was better quality work. B, it was less expensive. And then C, it allowed us to be more time because we didn't feel like we were trapped to the office nine to five. And it allowed us to enjoy our life more. And the business, like we just got really good at putting processes in place and optimizing those processes. And through that, we were able to free up so much time and become really efficient and optimized with the business and extremely profitable. So now like the business, like feet is extremely successful and profitable right now. And it takes like less than an hour a day to run wow. with that. Cause we just have the right people in the right places and set up the right processes, which is awesome. But it was a long transition and it's trial and error, but we figured out how to really optimize these processes and these different resources and people we have. I was just about to ask about that because it seems like at some point in the journey, you definitely had some capacity opened up for you to start working because now you have a media agency. It's Taylor Parker Agency, right? Yeah. So something that really stuck with me for a while was like two quotes. One is you want to work on your business, not in your business. And that was huge to me because like when you're in the weeds of like responding to customer service questions or in the weeds of working in the business, you can't work on the business on a macro level. So that was interesting. And that kind of taught me to get out of the weeds of a business and set up processes in place. And then another, I had a mentor say, what's the point of business? What's the point of these businesses? And I was like, e-commerce businesses talk about that. And I was like, I mean, I guess to make money. And he goes, keep talking. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, to make money without using your time. So it's like really like the goal of the business is to set up something that could live without you and be profitable without you and then free up your time again. That's kind of the part you took with feet and it's pretty profitable and successful without us and freed up our time throughout this whole process. We got pretty good at social media campaigns and e-commerce and advertising and, you know, running social accounts organically. And we were getting all this press like Forbes, New York times, all this stuff. So we had a lot of inbound for consulting. And at first I was like, I don't want to do consulting. I don't want an agency. I hate agencies. And then someone's like, I'll pay you five grand a month to do it. And I was like, Oh shit, that's tight. I'll do that. <laughs> so I started doing that. And then they said, you know, my friend wants you're doing such a good job with me. My friend, I know this other company, they want to work with you too. And I was like, I don't want to do that. And he's like, they'll pay you 10 grand a month. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, so now we have clients that pay like upwards of 20 grand a month. And it's like extremely profitable for us. And for us, we're able to 
in not that much time, we're able to communicate a lot of the lessons we learned and scale, especially these bigger companies, man. We are so much more knowledgeable on them than e-commerce and social media. They just have no idea what they're doing. So a little bit of our time is extremely valuable for them. So we're doing the agency. And then for smaller clients that can't do the agency, I set up an online course and that's a lower price point, super accessible for everyone. So I have an online course. That's another revenue stream, pretty good business for us. And it kind of teaches you everything you need to know about e-commerce. We're launching a new company pretty soon called My Last Bottle, which I'm pretty hyped about. I'm writing a newsletter. So it's like, it's awesome like to free up our time to be able to do all these different, anything we want, really. You've obviously got a ton going on, but I'm also just thinking back to that part in your story where you could tell you were kind of learning something from those kids in the streets in Thailand who didn't have anything, but were still happy. So can you envision yourself getting to a point where you're like, you know what, I don't need any of these businesses, like I'm good. Or do the businesses just bring you so much you know, happiness because if that's who you are, you're just such an entrepreneur? They do bring me happiness and it gives me purpose. But yeah, I think the hardest thing for anyone to do is to find the balance between ambition and complacency. Because it's really hard. You could be super ambitious, but then you might not be so happy and you're kind of taking on two projects. But then you're also, if you're too complacent, you feel like you're horrible. So that's the hardest thing to balance is like feeling like you're worth something and to enjoy the small wins and enjoy your time without feeling complacent. And then being able to be ambitious without, you know, overextending yourself. But I think that's the constant balance that any entrepreneur has to work on. And I think it's never perfect. You go too far on one side, then you go too far on the other. And it's like, I'll do six months where I'm a head down working way too hard. Then I'll say, shit, I need a break. And I'll go six months where like, I'll sleep until 10 every day and be like, I need a break. <laughs> um, then I'll be like, I feel like a bum again. I'm going to start waking up at 6 a.m. and grinding and hustling again. So that's the hardest thing is to try to find that balance between being ambitious and being complacent. All right, this is completely unrelated, Taylor, but how the hell did you get in a Justin Bieber music video? <laughs> <laughs> the Justin Bieber music video, it was just networking and just knowing people. And I was just in LA and I had a friend text me saying, hey, you want to be in a Justin Bieber music video? And I said, uh, what do you mean? And they're like, we're shooting tomorrow in the Valley to show up at this time. And I was like, okay, sure. <laughs> I thought it'd be fun. So it's kind of my attitude. Just kind of always say yes to everything. I'm just like, okay, cool. Let's do it. That's cool. So yeah, I ended up being a background dancer in a Justin Bieber music video, which is uh, probably one of the funniest things on my resume. Did they actually have to like teach you a dance or were you just like kind of grooving? Well, the funniest part is I'm the, I'm the worst dancer. So like everyone there was like actually professional dancers and I have literally no rhythm. So yeah, that was extremely difficult. And like the directors kept getting mad at me for not being able to dance that well. So they ended up having me just like kind of stand next to a girl and just like hold on to her. <laughs> We will be sure to link that in the show notes with the timestamp of when you get your cameo. <laughs> Amazing. So Taylor, this has been a ton of fun. You have so many different things going on, but for our audience members who want to connect with you, hear more about your story, where is the best place they can get in touch with you or read about you? Yeah. So some of the best places on Instagram, our main account that has a couple hundred thousand followers, that's at Taylor Parker. My personal account is at Taylor Offer. If they want to check out the hoodies or socks, that's www.feetsocks.com. If they're interested in the online course, that's taylorparkeracademy.com. If they're interested in the agency, that's taylorparkeragency.com. If they're interested in the newsletter, the daily newsletter, that's group-chat.com. If they're interested in My Last Bottle, which is the new project we're working on, that's at My Last Bottle on Instagram. And I think that is most of it. And if, you, <laughs> if they're interested in my daily humor on LinkedIn, I post a lot of funny comments there. It's just Taylor Offer on LinkedIn. And yeah, that's pretty much it. You got a lot of options. Sweet, man. <laughs> and it's feet, F-E-A-T, correct? Yes, F-E-A-T. All right, Joe, the other thing we always ask all of our guests is for somebody who's on that path to financial independence, what's just like your main tangible tip you could give them? 
just set up automated income so that you don't really have to do it. So it's like those things stack up, even if it's 50 bucks or a month or a couple hundred bucks a month, like wherever you can automate income, whether it's doing like referrals for things or whatever it is, setting up an e-commerce company, whatever it is, like stack as many revenue streams as possible. Because anything you can get on top, and I think most people will probably be working a normal nine to five, that's great, that's your base. And then figure out how you could stack different things on top of that. Figure out how someone could pay you 500 bucks a month to run their Instagram. Figure out how you could do whatever it is. Like figure out how you do these little side hustles. And once they start to stack, you could automate them and really scale that. Yeah, I love that, man. We are all about building skills. And honestly, skills are future currency. So that is just an awesome tip. And now the final question of the podcast. It's definitely the most important question because I'm not ready. Justin's not ready. So Taylor, that means you're definitely not ready. And this is the wild card question. (laughs) I can't wait. All right. So I love that we're both UMass guys. Go UMass. We're putting UMass on the map for entrepreneurship and doing stuff in the world. I want to hear the craziest semi-family appropriate UMass story you got. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. Where do I start? One night after the bars, I went back and I had a girl break into my window in my apartment to come see me. Like, I didn't want to. And she like literally broke my apartment window and broke in. So that was kind of scary. <laughs> well, Taylor, thank you so much for giving us part of your time. You're obviously uh, a busy guy, even with the automation. You're out there crushing it. So thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your really cool story. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Man, I've got to say, Justin, this is one of my favorite episodes to date. Might be a little biased because he is also a fellow UMass Amherst grad, but man, what do you think of this episode? I think my favorite thing about the episode was just kind of the progression that he goes through from being a small child who's obsessed with this whole price arbitrage thing to selling the t-shirts, which he obviously put a lot of hustle into. I mean, he's driving across the country selling these things and how that progressed all the way into the sock business. And then, you know, just how that progressed kind of ups and downs with the business. He really gave us the full spectrum of what it's like to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, he really did paint the full picture, and it was just so cool to see. I mean, I love these entrepreneurial success stories. Obviously, he highlighted a bunch of failures as well, but he said he sold $2,000 worth of socks out of a dining hall that I ate at very frequently called Burke. He sold them in like an hour, and his friend, his business partner, Parker, was like, are you serious, dude? Like, how did you sell $2,000 worth of socks? And right at that moment, they knew they had something gold. Yeah, I think this is one of those classic examples of something where you look back on it, you're like, God, that makes so much sense. Why didn't I think of that? Like (laughs) college kids, crazy socks, like I could see that working. But in the moment, like, you know, who would take the risk of going out and buying all these plain white socks and trying to figure out how to heat press them? You know, like that sounds crazy to most people that you're going to do that yourself. And then how they kind of start scaling on a little bit local level where they're hiring their buddies in some unheated warehouse to... (laughs) you know, come in after the bars to do the manual labor for them. I mean, they're really looking for any angle they can to scale. I love it, though. These guys are just so scrappy. And I really like how transparent Taylor was with us. Like he said, he scaled his company up from two to 20 employees in 10 months, realized that they were all entry level people. They had no idea what they were doing. Him and Parker thought that they could train everyone. It would be all good. But that was not the case at all. They quickly downsized when they had that huge manufacturing scare and they couldn't deliver all their stuff. It was just a wild, wild story. And now they're back to two employees, him and Parker, and they're outsourcing everything else. So it's kind of like just guess and checking. That's pretty much the whole life and blood of entrepreneurship is like no one knows what the heck they're doing right away. But Taylor just kept trudging, kept persisting, even through the emotional ups and downs. Yeah, you know, mention the emotional ups and downs. That's one of my favorite parts of this episode is it still had some of that psychological flavor where... You know, he talks about just getting so stressed and depressed and just taking this random trip to Thailand and seeing these little kids in the streets who had nothing. And they were so much happier than him. 
who had millions of dollars and had all the toys and the crazy warehouse and was just living, you know, the dream. But that dream wasn't actually bringing him any happiness. And for him to take that and learn from it and change the way he was doing things and change his entire life. And then after Taylor kind of clears his head, he gets back from Thailand. He kind of automates the business with Parker. He said he works on feet probably one hour a day. Most of it's automated and outsourced. That has not stopped him. It's such a huge success. But now he's building even newer and bigger businesses. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously... Whoa. What was that, Justin? It's that call to action, Cody. And this week's call to action is kind of this two-part thing that go together really well, where if you find yourself really stressed out because you feel like you're having to do just everything in life, whether that's at work, your personal life, and you're just letting all these tasks kind of compile and add up on you, look for some ways to automate that and take the stress off. I mean, in Taylor's case, it actually made his business more profitable. But I would say even if you're having to pay just a little bit for that automation, it may be worth it because it may open up more time for you to find a side hustle you actually enjoy, or it may just bring you happiness. And hey, that's worth plenty. That's an awesome call to action, Justin. I totally agree. Automation is great as long as it's not too, too expensive. And we just hit on a lot of great stuff in this episode. So if you want to get any of the extra details, any of the links, any of the backstory on Taylor, you can do that at thefyshow.com slash Taylor. And if you want to join one of the most inclusive, fun, personal finance focused Facebook groups, you can do that at thefyshow.com slash community. And as always, if you've been enjoying this content, we really appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening to The Fi Show. Hit us with that five-star review and rating. It helps us get great guests like Taylor and just broaden the message. Thanks for listening. See you on next week's episode of The Fi Show. Mm-hmm.